Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The air has turned crisp and cool. The leaves are changing colors, and once again, Southerners are complaining about biased refs and commentators every Saturday. That's right, it's football season, my favorite season. So much of the South's culture and calendar revolves around football season. Universities like Alabama, Clemson, and Texas have turned their programs into vital economic engines that support cities and even states. TV deals bring in hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue to programs and leagues like the SEC and the ACC. And today we build statues of athletes and coaches in the same way we once revered war heroes and statesmen. Southerners are quite simply obsessed with college football. But why exactly? That's not a question I've ever really stopped to think about. Football has just always been a constant. But today on The Reckon Interview, author Ed Southern explains the roots of our football obsession. In our conversation about his new book, Fight Songs, A Story of Love and Sports in a Complicated South, Ed outlines how the rules of football and Southern culture have evolved in tandem with each other. We also discuss whether there is any truth to the legend about football being a way for Southerners to refight the Civil War, and how 2020 may have reshaped the future of college football. Ed grew up in Winston-Salem, home to Wake Forest University, the smallest school in the Power Five conferences. And North Carolina is, historically, basketball country. But Ed married into an Alabama football fan base, and we discuss his trepidation about embracing the fandom of a juggernaut. There's a lot in this conversation that's going to surprise you, so let's go ahead and get started on this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Ed Southern, welcome to The Reckon Interview. Thank you, John. Good to be here. You grew up in North Carolina, and your new book, Fight Songs, I believe, was originally designed to be a story about meeting and falling in love with your wife, an Alabamian and using sports, kind of basketball country in North Carolina and football country in Alabama, obviously, as a way of understanding itself. And you write in the opening that it didn't exactly turn out the way that you had planned. So tell me about the book you had in your head and the book that you wound up writing. Well, at first, I really wasn't going to write a book at all. I was going to write just a short little essay about how weird it is being a lifelong Wake Forest fan married to an Alabama fan and thinking particularly about the old Steely Dan song, uh, Deacon Blues, you know, where the chorus is, they have a name for the winners in the world. I want a name when I lose. They call Alabama the Crimson Tide. Call me Deacon Blues. I mean, you know, and Wake Forest has been on, uh, you know, for us, an extraordinary run of success the last few years, but we're still everybody's go-to shorthand for the football program no one cares about. And so I thought I'd write something, you know, just kind of funny and lighthearted about that. And then I started looking into, you know, like really asking the question, like, well, why why is North Carolina seen as a college basketball state 
whereas Alabama and really the rest of the South is, is all about college football. What, what happened? What's the difference? Um, the easy answer is, well, that's, you know, because that's, you know, the North Carolina schools tend to win more at basketball than they do at football. Okay. But then the question becomes, why do they win more at basketball than they do at football? You know, even back in the 1920s, you don't just, you know, pick five guys, pick 11 guys, roll a ball out on the court, throw a ball out on the field and start winning games. It takes intention. It takes investment. And so what happened that, that this is the sport that North, most North Carolinians set their seasons by instead of college football? And, and that led into, you know, down some rabbit holes and, and into some, some fairly heavy issues in Southern history. And the more I started exploring those, the longer and longer this essay got. And then I was telling a friend of mine who's an editor about it. And uh, she said, well, it's, it's far too long for the magazine that, that I edit. But have you thought of turning it into a book? And so I started, you know, exploring a little bit more and, and still thinking it would be lighthearted and funny and fun. And then 2020 happened. And a lot of these, you know, the heavier issues that I had planned at least to, to glance at, were suddenly front and center um, throughout the South and throughout the nation. And it just felt irresponsible to not take a fuller look at those in the course of this writing. You talked about being a Wake Forest fan. And of course, uh, you write about how they are the smallest of the Power Five schools. I and mean, you grew up there rooting for them. And you also spent some time in Greenville, home to Clemson Tigers, who, of course, are the preeminent powerhouse these days uh, in the ACC, I guess have gone back and forth with, with Florida State and a, and a brief emergence of Virginia Tech there for a while, <laughs> and, I, and Miami once upon a time. But it's interesting the way that you start to break down what is, quote unquote, the South based off of that football culture. You know, you talk about North Carolina being a basketball state, Kentucky is until recently a one sport state and now seems to be having at least some success with with football this season so far it's early when we're recording this but they can finally throw the ball and then you've got some schools in alabama like alabama and auburn who occasionally have some basketball success but are defined by what they do in, in football at one point you write a little bit about a chip on your shoulder about being considered not Southern enough living in North Carolina and the differences you saw when you came to Birmingham to visit the woman who became your wife. What are the differences you saw between North Carolina and, and Alabama? I'm curious. It's really hard to, I mean, there, there are the obvious differences in, you know, generally, not always, but generally if you get barbecue in Alabama, it's going to be on the rib. Uh, if you get barbecue in North Carolina, it's going to be chopped. You know, I had never had uh, crab claws uh, before my, my now wife took me to Mobile for the first time. We've got Calabash shrimp. And then, of course, the difference in, you know, the football culture versus the basketball culture. Beyond that, though, I mean, it's really hard to put a, a finger on. And I, I still wonder to what extent is it real and to what extent is it uh, sort of in our minds? Is it, you know, this this image that we somehow build up over time that kind of colors what we see when we're in either place. You know, it was really, I mean, for me at least, it was more shocking when we moved not that many miles away to, to upstate South Carolina and, and really felt like we had crossed some kind of dividing line, you know, not just between the two states, 
But of course, you know, in South Carolina, football rules the way it does in Alabama. You know, basketball is nice, but, you know, on football Saturdays, even back then, Clemson became the fourth largest city in the state. That was where I really noticed the big difference. And um, I don't know, just something in the air. And it, like I say, even after doing, you know, 300 pages of this book, it's still hard for me to, to put it in concrete terms other than in things like the state of Alabama comes to a standstill for the Iron Bowl every year. State of North Carolina used to come to a standstill for quarterfinal Friday of the ACC tournament, but doesn't anymore. What I wanted to explore, explore was not only the difference in sport and in season, but the difference in that verb tense that I use that, you know, Alabama still, you know, the Iron Bowl has that place in the calendar that the ACC tournament doesn't in North Carolina anymore. One thing that I thought was really interesting was the way that you talked about how fan culture has evolved over the generations. You know, you write about your grandfather and my grandfather was the same way, being fans of the sport more than they were fans and devotees of a specific team. When did we start seeing this fan culture really kind of emerge and become a defining hallmark of Southern sports? I mean, I think, you know, to, to some extent it was always there, at least among some people, but you really started to see it rise um, based on what I read in the, the 60s and the 70s. And I think with the rise of, of sports on television and with the advent of new media where you could follow a team more closely than you once could. I think it also, you know, coincides with not just the rise of new media, but with what C. Van Woodward called the bulldozer revolution, where you had more and more Southerners moving off of the farms, out of the rural areas, out of the small towns and into the cities. And I think, I mentioned in the book, a large part of my rooting interest in the teams that I root for is because of the, the sense of rootedness that I get. And I think as more and more people started to lose that sense of rootedness, you know, they picked up, they moved to a new town, they moved to a new region. They looked to the home team as a way to get that sense of home. And so they started attaching more to a team than they did to just the sport itself. And then that only increased with, you know, now with cable TV, I talk about in the book, you know, the morning before I went to my first game at Bryant-Denny, turned on the TV and they were showing a Wake Forest Duke game, which was just astonishing to me. I know, you know, who on earth in the Birmingham media market cared to look about Wake Forest and Duke playing each other. But that's how ubiquitous college football has become now is that, you know, I could still watch my favorite team you know, a whole time zone away while I'm fixing to go watch Alabama play. And so that allows a kind of fandom and account, a kind of rooting to a particular team that you wouldn't have had even, you know, 40 years ago. Before we reach that point, however, you go the extra 10 miles, I guess, and you go to football's real roots hundreds of years ago in England, the Shrove Tide football games, not to be confused with Roll Tide football games. What did medieval football look like? I, you know, I didn't realize this until you pointed out in the book, but there are Shakespearean references to, to footballers and things like that, which, you know, I guess in my head, I just automatically make the change to that being soccer. But there were some similarities between Shrove Tide football and American football too, it sounds like. I'm so glad that I discovered Shrove Tide football, and, and I, I did it a few years ago before I even was thinking about writing this book. For any who don't know, it's it's one of the few surviving games of village football 
left in the world. No one knows when it began, literally. There's a poem that was written in the 1600s that references it and refers to it as an ancient tradition already by the 1600s. If there was a record of how it started, it's long since been lost. There's one theory that it began, they would play with the the severed head of a sacrifice to the sun god before Christianity came to the British Isles. There's another theory that it was first played with the severed head of an invader whose attack they defeated. And then there's the the more prosaic theory that it's just, you know, it's probably a bunch of kids who took a bladder or some other internal organ out of a sheep and inflated it and started kicking it around. This village Ashmore in England is divided by uh, the river Henmore. And if you're born north of the Henmore, you're an uppered. If you're born south of the Henmore, you're a downer. And those are the two teams that play Shrovetide football. And the whole village joins in. And the whole village is the playing field. There's one goal uh, about a mile and a half above town, one goal about a mile and a half below town. There are three rules. You can't transport the ball in a motor vehicle. You can't take the game into a churchyard or into a church. And you can't kill anybody. Other than that, anything goes. And I watched it on the live stream one year when somebody had left their car parked on a side street where I'm sure they thought it would be safe. And the car was totaled just by a whole village full of bodies pressing up against it. And you watch, you know, this car crumple underneath the weight of all those people. It's, it's extraordinary. It is my favorite sporting event that I've never been to. And I, I very much hope I can go. Uh, it's, it's certainly high on my bucket list. The early evolution of American football, you know, you're right when it first came to America, it was more similar to English football, which we all commonly call soccer you know, that game between Princeton and Rutgers, which is commonly called the first college football game. And the rules changed a lot very early on, but you also point out that it was unique that American football was so preoccupied with establishing rules. What do we know about that version of the American football game and how quickly it became something similar to the modern game? The Princeton-Rutgers game, from everything I read, would have looked a lot more like what we'd recognize as soccer than, than what we'd recognize as football. There was a lot more kicking of the ball. I, I think the players could use the hands, but they rarely did. And then at some point, and I forget the year, the team from Harvard went uh, north to Canada and played the team from McGill University, which was playing football using the rules developed at the rugby school, um, which we now recognize as the game of rugby, which you didn't kick the ball, or you rarely kicked the ball. You mostly picked it up and ran with it and tossed it by hand to your teammates. And the Harvard team decided they liked this version of football better. So when they come back to the United States, they talk all the other teams that they're playing into playing with the rugby rules. And so the rugby rules take off. And then I think it was in the 1870s that they established the line of scrimmage, which was an American mispronunciation of scrummage, a rugby term. And the idea that, okay, we're going we're gonna to draw this imaginary line through the field, and one team's going to be on one side of it, and the other team's going to be on the other side, and the team in possession of the ball is going to start the play, and the team playing defense is going to react. And the book I read, Michael Oriard's Reading Football, said that really that's the only freely chosen innovation that turned American football into American football, because every other new rule in the American game came about as a response to 
some oversight or some loophole that the line of scrimmage had created. So, you know, uh, they create the line of scrimmage, teams start taking advantage of something that the, the, the organizers of the sport never intended. So they make a rule to stop them from taking advantage of it, which leads to another rule, which leads to another rule. And next thing you know, whereas rugby for decades didn't have a, a referee at all, the team captains were expected to call penalties on themselves. And when they did add a, a referee, the purists were outraged. They thought, well, there goes our gentlemanly sport. You know, we, we should be expected to police the game ourselves. By the early 1900s, American football, you already had something like five or six referees patrolling the field because, you know, there were so many rules in place. And for however many rules, teams had four ways of getting around them. You're also kind of, as you're charting the history of the sport, you're charting the history of the South as well. And you talk about, you know, Americans needing those rules in place in part because it was such a new country and a relatively unestablished people. And you do some of this through your own personal lineage. And you, you say in the book that it's, it's lame for people to bring up your name, but I'm going to do it anyways, because you do have a name that seems destined to write this book. So tell me about the Southerns, not the Southerners, and, and where they came from in, in Great Britain. Southern apparently is an Anglo-Saxon name. There are actually a fair number of Southerns in uh, the UK still. In fact, maybe now this the, the, the book has launched, this has changed, but at least the last time I checked, if you Google Ed Southern, your first hit is going to be Sir Edwin Southern, who is a, a Lasker Prize winning molecular biologist at uh, Oxford, or as I like to call him, the smart Ed Southern. It, it referred originally to, I mean, to the direction that either you know, some ancestor of mine lived on the southern end of the village or wandered into the village from the south. And so, you know, that that was how he got referred to. And the name ended up getting passed down through the generations. We're not sure. I'm, I'm not a genealogist. And to be honest with you, I'm not all that interested in genealogy. I know some people who are. And so I'm, I'm able to take advantage of their research. We're not sure exactly when our first ancestor came to what's now the United States, um, but the assumption is that it was sometime in the 1600s in what was Virginia. There was a, a John Southern who landed in, uh, I believe, 1620 at Jamestown and uh, served in uh, the first House of Burgesses. There's no definitive proof that I'm descended from that guy, as nice as it might be to claim it. Um, but then, you know, uh, uh, spent 400 years in this country and, and you, know, you kind of spread across. I'm, I'm distantly related somehow or another to the screenwriter Terry Southern who wrote Dr. Strangelove, which I think is the most fascinating connection to me. Yeah. And so then, you know, in the 1700s, they, they wandered into North Carolina and at least my branch has been here since. You talk about there being this tendency in the South for everybody to claim that they are from the Scots-Irish and that really most people are from the borders and, and that that did bring a certain sensibility with it to the South, which may have in some ways shaped football fandom, you know, year, years down the line. Can you talk about that evolution a little bit? I could die happy if I never hear the term Scots-Irish again. And, and uh, you know, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's a valid group, but even originally, you know, uh, there, there was a, a Scots-Irish immigrant to this country who was quoted as saying, we are a mixed people. And people tend to talk about it as if it's, um, 
first of all, the, the, the whole notion of a racially pure ethnic group is ridiculous. But it was really the Scots-Irish were just one part of this mass migration from, for the most part, you know, the north of England, lowland Scotland, what's now Northern Ireland, and Wales, along with Germans, Dutch. Uh, there were all sorts of people, you know, the, the, the closest geographic definer would be the North Sea that were coming to, you know, what would become the United States in the 1700s. And there was, you know, this history and culture that they brought with them of a lot of small scale warfare, a lot of uh, raids back and forth across the various borders that they lived on, uh, a lot of resentment. They were described, and of course, you know, often those who were doing this describing had their own biases um, as being very touchy and very quick to fight. And, and it did sort of, you know, flavor life in, in the back country of the South. And of course it met, you know, when it got here, but there was already a, a tidewater culture in place that had been established in the 1600s by, by those settlers, um, which had its own tradition of uh, demonstrative play and, and using athletic contests, you know, mainly horse racing as a, a marker of dominance. And so, you know, these were two cultures sort of bound up in, in honor and shame that collided in the American South, and we're still feeling the effects today. You talk about a couple of the key reasons that people pushed football and sports in general on college campuses. One, and I was surprised I learned this one, was to teach corporate hierarchy and divisions of labor. Uh, and then also the sense that it did maybe prepare people for and teach them the lessons of combat. And then in the South, which was late to football, as was the Midwest, there was sort of this regional pride. Uh, and there's always been kind of the, the common argument that Southerners glommed on to football as a way of refighting the Civil War. And you suggest there may be some truth to that, but that that's not necessarily the whole story about why the South embraced football. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, in the late 1800s, by the time football came to the South, there, there already was this um, tradition in the Northeast of ascribing to football these manly and martial virtues that it could teach the next generation of young men you know how to be how to be real men and could prepare them you know if, if they ever had to fight in a war because you know and and I got a lot of this from from Andrew Doyle who's a Birmingham native who now teaches at Winthrop University in Rock Hill South Carolina just across the the state line from Charlotte and he talks about how you know Following the Civil War, you, you in the Northeast, you've got this period of rapid industrialization, and um, all of a sudden, you know, men are working out of the home place, and there's this this what he called a crisis of masculinity that they're worried about. You know, uh, how are we going to teach our boys to be real men if they're at home with their mothers all day or locked up in a schoolhouse? You know, we we've got teaching the manly virtues and. You know, and I think football started because it's fun. You know, it was a fun game for college boys to, to blow off some steam. But then not just the players themselves, but others who were watching it sort of fastened all these other meanings onto it. And it began to be encouraged as this, you know, inculcator of the manly virtues and, and you know, a way to teach our boys how to be men. And so it ha it has that already when it comes to the South, when we're talking about the, the the young men who are in college at this time, we're talking about the sons of the elite. You know, we're talking about the sons of people who can afford to send their children to college. They're trying to reestablish their dominance over Southern society. 
they're smarting still from the loss of the Civil War. And so, you know, you, you hand them this game that has these meanings pre-attached to it. And of course, they're going to embrace it. And of course, many of them are going to see it as a way, you know, of refighting the Civil War, especially come 1926, when Alabama goes to the Rose Bowl and no one in the country expects them to win, and they do. And they come back and, and there are Southern newspapers, not just in Alabama, but all across the South, celebrating this as, as revenge for Gettysburg. It was sort of a natural fit. But I don't think that that's all that was going on in the embrace of college football. I think there was a long history that predates the Civil War that got wrapped into it. Uh, you know, this, this tradition of competitive play as a marker of dominance, this tradition of the honor and shame culture, uh, this tradition of, you know, expecting, you know, young men to be proficient with and willing to use violence to, you know, to put down a slave revolt if necessary, to fight against the indigenous peoples, protect against, you know, protect young settlements, uh, you know, from, from the indigenous people who wanted their land back. All of this, this gets wrapped up into it and leads to, you know, the football taking this, this place atop the hierarchy of sport in most of the South. Well, and that's a section of the book that's really interesting is college football in the South starts out as a source of white racial pride and a sport of the elite, like you were talking about, because that's who could afford to go to college. You know, in the intervening decade since then, there has kind of been this ongoing dance with college football when it comes to racial progress. You know, on the one hand, you have football success as a carrot for desegregation in places like Alabama. But on the other hand, some have pointed out that the modern game does seem to have some similarities to a plantation economy. How has the game evolved since the advent of, of integrated football teams? Again, it struck me as one of these historical coincidences that the integration of college football, again, roughly coincided with the rise of college football on TV. Um, you know, most college football programs began, you know, so, some were, were integrated as early as the 1950s, and I think a few even in the 1940s, but I could be wrong about that, and, and some even earlier. Um, in the South, it doesn't begin at all until the 1960s, and then accelerates in, in the 1970s, which is also when you have college football becoming a TV mainstay, both uh, you know on Saturday afternoons and in prime time. You have you know Bear Bryant becoming a TV star in addition to a great coach. And so with the rise of football on TV, eventually that leads to these multi-billion dollar media rights deals that colleges or more specifically conferences are, uh, are signing these days where there is so much money changing hands in the business of college sports and especially college football. Up until very recently, so much of, of the college athletics world was still touting these ideas of amateurism that really were out of date 100 years ago and somehow saying that, you know, the, the value of an education, often a curtailed education, is enough payment to the players on whose backs this, this industry has evolved. And last year you wrote about, I mean, you talked about how you were writing this book in 2020. That shed a light not only on the economic issues of football uh, and to some extent basketball, but also the racial issues at play. And you saw a lot of players in Tuscaloosa, in Greenville, in Oxford, Mississippi, starting to recognize the, the power that they had to advocate for change, both systemically and locally. 
Yeah, and and you know when I said it, it, it seemed irresponsible of me not to deal with the the heavier issues, confront them or try to confront them head on as much as I could. The the involvement of so many college athletes in the Black Lives Matter movement was really front and center in my mind. That if you could have these players, many of whom are in a very precarious situation, you know, I mean they they could have their scholarships revoked at any moment, and yet they were speaking out, speaking their minds. I thought brilliant essay that Alex Leatherwood wrote and that they recorded, you know, with, with it seemed like just about the whole team and Coach Saban citing for, for a video. You had uh, Darian Wrencher and Trevor Lawrence at Clemson leading a rally and a march through Clemson, South Carolina. I mean, uh, the corpse of John C. Calhoun must have been spinning in his grave. You know, you had uh, Kylan Hill at Mississippi State saying, you know, he was going to boycott the season if state of Mississippi didn't change its state flag. You had Lane Kiffin and Mike Leach showing up at the Mississippi State Capitol. And then, of course, towards the end of the summer, you had Nick Saban, you know, leading his team on a Black Lives Matter march to the very same schoolhouse door that George Wallace once stood in. And I know that all of this is, you know, these are all symbols. These are all signs. They're not necessarily, well, they're, they're, they're not necessarily representative of systemic change, of, of real and lasting change, but they're sure representative of something. And so much of it that we saw, you know, would not have been imaginable, you know, not that many years ago. I found it extraordinary to see. Well, on the one hand, part of me is a little bit apprehensive to have Bryce Young as a competitor in the podcast space. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how these new deals that college players are able to strike right now does change. The economies of the communities where they grew up, because a lot of the money had funneled, you know, into the pockets of people who already had money up until players reached the um, the NFL uh, and were able to get big paychecks then. But you know that this could reshape many of the economies of the South in, in the years ahead. I think. Oh, I think so. And, and it's funny how you know the attitude towards that has changed uh, among fans. A North Carolina sports writer that I spoke to for the book, Lauren Brownlow, talked about how, you know, we've gone from, you know, what player got paid? How awful. Oh, gosh, you know, the decline of civilization right there. And now we hear about a player getting paid. And we're like, good, good for you. Get you some. That's great. You know, it, it, it it's only right that they get a small cut of, of the many, many dollars involved. Coming up after the break, more from Ed Southern about college football culture in the South and the story of how Bear Bryant helped him find a love connection. Bammers is back. You know, game day at Tuscaloosa is, is so special. The tailgating, reconnecting with, you know, friends and, and people. A lot of times we don't choose what we become invested in, I feel like. It was kind of this eerie feeling of walking around on a huge game day and barely seeing anyone there. It was just like this little like ghost town feeling. Do you love Alabama football? Well, then you'll love this. Well, I've watched Alabama football from like Harvard Yard. Bammers, available on Apple and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You, you talked about, you know, sports and especially football being tied to masculinity in the South. You write early on in your book about how you weren't big enough to play peewee football as a kid. How much do you think that that shaped how personally devoted you are to the sport, the fact that you weren't able to play when you were young. Yeah, I think it certainly did. I mean, it's hard to say if I would be more or less of a fan of football 
if I had played or played organized football at any level. Uh, for a long time, I, I turned away from, from football and, and for a while from most sports and, and just wasn't interested. I was, I was interested in other things. And I think part of it was because, you know, we, we grew up in such a sports-centric household that, you know, I just as most kids do, I, it wasn't so much a rebellion as just a break. You know, I just, I just needed a break from all that. Um, you know, certainly by high school, I, I was getting back into it and, and both playing sports and, and watching sports. It's always been something that, that, you know, I've enjoyed doing with my family. One of the, the surprising things, well, I guess not surprising, but one of, one of the interesting things is that almost everyone that I talked to for the book uh, who consider themselves a, a sports fan and particularly a, a football fan um, brought up their family in connection to it very early when I started speaking with them. And, and I don't think I ever had to ask about it. You know, they were the ones who, who volunteered that, that, you know, well, I love football because I grew up watching it with my dad or I grew up because, you know, it was something that my family did together. You know, we, we had season tickets or, you know, we gathered in front of the TV every Saturday to watch, you know, Alabama or whoever. But it is, you know, I, I do think that, that family plays an awfully important role in, in our, for a lot of people in their connection to sports. Yeah, definitely. Man, it starts early. You know, you get in Alabama, everything is scheduled around Saturdays in the fall. Um, but let's talk a little bit about basketball culture and the way that it differs from, from football culture. Uh, those of us in the SEC outside of Kentucky are fairly new to, to, to this basketball mania. But that's, you know, I don't know if that's your first passion for sport, but it's certainly one that you cared a lot about. And you talked about caring about the ACC tournament. What is the difference between basketball fandom and football fandom to you? I think because of the schedule and because of the season, being a college basketball fan, it's more of like a, uh, it's more of a sort of a constant hum, not quite in the background, but it's sort of omnipresent because, you know, at least when I was growing up, games were played, you know, on like a, a Saturday, Wednesday schedule or Sunday, Tuesday or, or something like that. And so you had at least a couple of games a week and they were almost always at night, except on Saturdays and Sundays. And so it couldn't become the event the way a football game is. You know, um, you can tailgate for a basketball game, but it's kind of tough because you're going to be doing it a lot especially, you know, during the week, it means you're going to be coming straight from work, trying to set up some kind of tailgate and then go into the game. And it's just, it's not nearly as fun. Plus it's played in the wintertime. And so a lot of times you're dealing with bad weather and it's an indoor sport. It's, you know, domes aside, football is an outdoor sport. There's this feeling of celebration, just, you know, being out there. I, I don't know how many descriptions of college football that I read that were refer, refer to a beautiful fall Saturday. You know, the leaves changing color, the crispness in the air. In basketball, you're talking about, you know, you're inside a sweaty arena, you know, with several thousand other screaming maniacs. And so it's just the game has a different feel to it. The game itself is more fast paced. It's more constant. It's not uh, as cinematic. One of the writers that I talked to, uh, Eric G. Wilson, described football as the most cinematic sport. And I thought he was right. I'd never thought of it in those terms. Even though, you know, I would argue the best sports movie ever is Hoosiers, you know, a basketball game itself doesn't have kind of the, the, the four-act drama that a football game does. It doesn't lend itself to the emotional rise and fall 
that football does. You married into an Alabama family, and that was going to be part of the thrust of this book, or of, of what was originally going to be an essay, I guess, meeting your future wife. Uh, as a result of having read a Bear Bryant biography. Uh, tell us about how y'all met and then tell us about your reluctance to put on an Alabama football uh, shirt <laughs> in Tuscaloosa. As we've talked about when I was a kid, um, my family moved to Greenville, South Carolina. And um, which was, I mean, you move any place right before eighth grade, and it's going to be kind of a shock and a difficult adjustment. But I already felt very you know, bound to my home state of North Carolina by that point. And so one of the things that I started doing after we moved down there was every summer I would buy up as many college football preseason preview magazines as I could get my hands on because I'm, I'm old enough that this was before the internet. Uh, and so there was no other way for me to find out what kind of season Wake Forest could be expected to have. There was no other way for me to find out the likely starting roster before the season started. That became a tradition that, that I carry on to this day. You know, I spend my summers reading as much as I can about the upcoming season and uh, found myself back in Winston-Salem uh, the summer of 2007. Wake Forest was the reigning champion uh, of ACC football, something I never thought I'd see happen in my lifetime. Uh, otherwise, it was one of the most difficult summers of my life. Um, just, you know, a lot of personal stuff going on and really a, a struggle to get through. And so I'd read all my preseason magazines by July and needed something to get me through to kickoff. It was really craving the start of college football. It was really craving that continuity of, you know, going to tailgate and going to the games with my family. I write in the book, you know, none of my problems that summer would line up and, and face me head on. Um, and, and so I needed that, you know, the, that, that open collision that football provided, uh, that kind of catharsis. And so in my job, I was working in publishing at the time and, and, and was talking to Jake Reese at the Alabama Booksmith and said, y'all are crazy about football down there. Can you recommend a good book about college football for me to read? And he said, yeah, you need to read The Last Coach by Alan Bear. It's a biography of Bear Bryant. I said, sounds great. Send me a copy. And uh, he did, and I read it. And uh, it, it's an extraordinary book. Um, it's a book that came at just the right time for me because, you know, I, I learned a lot about Bryant, of course, and about Alabama and Alabama football, but it really felt like I learned a lot about the South. I learned a lot about America and the American century. And I even felt like I got a pep talk from Bryant from beyond the grave, you know, because, you know, talked about the, 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 the speeches that he'd give to his players, you know, that are you going to quit? You know, it's fourth down now, but someday you're going to be 35 and your wife's run off the milkman. You've lost your job and the kids are sick. Are you going to quit them? You know, heck no, coach. Let me out. I'm, I'll put me back in there. I'm ready to go. And so I finished the book right before the season started. And then a couple of weeks later, I was in Atlanta for my job and uh, met a woman. And we got to talking and found out that she was from Birmingham, worked at the Alabama Booksmith and was a huge Crimson Tide fan. And so I'm thanking the good Lord and trying to play it cool and mention, you know, huh, I, I just read a biography of Bear Bryant called The Last Coach. Do you, do you know about this book? And she looked at me funny. And so I thought, well, I don't know what's going on there, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change the subject. Uh, we hit it off. We stayed in touch. You know, we'd call, we'd email. A few weeks after that, we were talking one night and football came up again, as it does often when she and I talk. 
And uh, Bear Bryant came up and I asked her again, have you, have you read The Last Coach? And she says, do you have your copy handy? I said, yeah. And she said, check the dedication page. She's Alan Bear's niece, one of the people that the book is dedicated to. And uh, that was, uh, let's see, it's coming up on uh, 14 years ago. And uh, come October, we will have been married 11 years. So uh, I owe Coach Brian a big thank you, not only for getting me through that summer, but for uh, helping me make that connection with the, the love of my life. Well, congratulations. Was it tough taking on that Alabama sportsdom? I mean, is that, is that part of your identity or are you? I, it, it's strange because, uh, and I think it's harder for me because Alabama has done so well. We, we met during Nick Saban's first season in Tuscaloosa. And so I tell the story in the book, uh, the first time that she and I, we, we dated long distance um, for about a year and a half. And the first time that we got together to specifically to watch a game together, um, she was working in New York. I was in North Carolina. We met in Washington, DC. And it was the first Chick-fil-A kickoff classic in Atlanta, Alabama playing Clemson 2008. She, you know, you asked me about the Alabama t-shirt. She, she had brought me an Alabama football t-shirt to wear. And I thought, you know, I've got no particular love loss for Clemson, but they are an ACC school and I am loyal to my conference and I'm loyal to the friends that I made in Greenville, all of whom are Clemson grads and, and huge Tiger fans. I was like, you know, but on the other hand, I love this woman and she loves her Crimson Tide it was a real moral dilemma for me. Finally, as is usually the case, she went out and uh, I put on the shirt and we watched Alabama absolutely demolish Clemson. And the thing that got me, <laughs> the thing that upset me was I, I didn't mind Alabama being Clemson. What upset me was uh, Kirk Herbstreet and Brent Musburger calling the game kept saying, and Clemson is the best that the ACC has to offer. It's like, oh God, now I feel awful for wearing this shirt. And and so we we watched the game and and I mean, frankly, you know, you probably remember it. It got kind of boring there towards the end. Uh, Clemson finished with exactly zero yards rushing. Um, and it and that was the first game, you know, Saban and the Tide have done it many times since, where they, you know, not just defeat an opponent in the season opener, but kind of wreck them for the rest of the season. And so, you know, we, we leave the bar where we'd watch the game and, and we're going back to our, our hotel and I'm walking down the street and someone hollers out, roll tide. And I just keep walking. And then we go a little bit further and someone hollers out, roll tide. And my wife nudges, excuse me, my then girlfriend nudges me and, and I look at them and they're looking at me and I look down and think, oh yeah, I'm wearing this t-shirt still. And so what I said back was, Thanks. And finally, the third time was the charm. The third time as we were getting on the Metro, someone says, roll tide. And finally, I managed with a grimace to say roll tide back. And so I guess that was sort of like my, my knock three times and, and I get in the club. I would feel more comfortable taking on an identity as an Alabama fan if Alabama wasn't so dominant because I worry – you know, I, I don't want to be a front runner. I don't want to be a bandwagon jumper. You know, um, you know, it feels almost too easy to to claim to be an Alabama fan in the Nick Saban era. 
you know, we, we have seen a, an exponential increase in the number of Alabama bumper stickers and window decals, even up here in Winston-Salem, you know, in the, you know, what are we up to now, 14 years since Saban took over at Alabama. You know, I certainly root for the Tide and, and cheer for them, um, even when they play the ACC. So far, I've been lucky. They, they have not yet played an ACC team that I particularly care about. They've played, you know, Clemson. They've played Duke. Uh, and they played and leave Louisville, us a which I, I, I told my wife, like, you know, I'm going to be until next for time, Alabama thanks for uh, harder against Louisville than she does. Um, but I'm still not sure that I, I, I want to, you know, to claim that as an identity just because, I don't, I don't know, like something about it just feels almost like cheating. Well, to close, you know, one last question for you. In the course of reporting out this book, everybody should go pick up a copy of it, especially if you love college football or if you're disinterested in, in Southern history. What have you learned about the South that, that's changed the way that you think about things? I think the big, you know, if, I, if I had to sum up what I learned in a single sentence, it would be that however complicated you think the South is, it's more complicated than that. I think when you start looking at, at, at the history of the South and really looking at it and looking beyond the stereotypes and the myths, you find it's a lot messier in, in ways that you weren't necessarily expecting. And some of that is in pretty innocuous ways. Like I was shocked to discover that the, the Atlantic Coast Conference was set up because of college football, not because you know basketball was an afterthought at the time. I was vaguely aware that Duke had been a football power. You know, in fact, Duke hired uh, Wallace Wade away from Alabama in the 1930s. That's the easy stuff. You know, that's the kind of the innocuous stuff. I was really surprised to learn more about, uh, this is an overused word, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to overuse it some more, the burdens that, that we've carried with us and, and that we've carried in, in often very unhealthy ways. Well, it's a great read, and I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. And people can pick it up from your wife's bookstore, uh, bookmarksnc.org, or the brick-and-mortar store there in, I guess, in Winston-Salem. Uh, or if you're in Alabama, Alabama Booksmith and Homewood, or some Hadley in Tuscaloosa. And of course, uh, you can find more of Ed's work and thoughts at edsouthern.com. Ed, thanks so much for coming on the show. Can't wait to have you back. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. And that's our show, folks. Thank you to Ed Southern for taking the time to chat with us today and for putting in the work to understand our football fandom. You can pick up a copy of his book, Fight Songs, at your favorite local bookstore. Or if you don't have a favorite local bookstore, you can order it from Bookmarks in Winston-Salem at bookmarksnc.org. What is your favorite football fandom moment? What's your go-to tailgating recipe? Have you ever actually skipped a major life event to watch a football game? Let me know by tweeting me at at John Hammontree or join our weekly newsletter, The Conversation, at ReckonSouth.com slash newsletters. The Reckon Interview is executive produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree. It's edited by Kanika Codrington and the great team over at Edit Audio. If you're enjoying our show, help us ensure we can keep it going by sharing it with your friends and on your social networks. And leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. And until next time, thanks for reckoning with me.